ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon, Selena Green bringing you The Country Hour today. In a moment, you'll hear from one South Australian as to why he's hoping to get voted onto the Australian Wool Innovation Board. And you'll hear about one farmer's fight for compensation over underperforming canola. We've been completely let down, Belinda, because it, the seat just wasn't fit for purpose. We are really disappointed, and we're, we're disappointed in the company. It just doesn't seem to want to deal with the issue. They're only interested in refunding the cost of the seed and forcing growers to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Anything like this ever happened to you? Did you seek compensation and did you have any joy getting it? My talkback number is 1300 991 or you can send me a text at any time on 0467 922 First today, a South Australian Merino stud owner is hoping he'll get a place on the Australian Wool Innovation Board this Friday. George Millington from Collinsville Stud Merino at Hallett in the Mid-North has put his name forward to try and make sure South Australian representation remains with South Australia's only current rep, James Morgan, retiring from the board. Mr Millington is speaking here with Brooke Nindorf about what he believes he would contribute to the role. Well, I think it, it, the wool industry is at a little bit of a crossroads. We're basically not getting enough for the product that we grow and I want to try and help and ensure that the industry is around for future generations. One of the, well, one of the other reasons I think it's really important that we have South Australian representation on the board. Uh, James Morgan from Mujeroo Pastoral Company has been on the board of AWI for the last 10 years um, and he's done a really good job in representing and being a voice for, South, for the South Australian industry. Uh, he has to retire with the new rules. He can't do any more terms. And I'm the only South Australian candidate. And I think it's really important that our industry, uh, it's a national board. Levy payers are paying levies to it from all over Australia. And I think it's really important that we have national representation on it. And equally so, I think it's really important that South Australian growers have a voice and have someone on there who represents South Australian interests. What do you think would happen if, if the board didn't have someone from South Australia on there? Well, I, I don't think it would be an absolute disaster, but again, as I said, it, it is growers from all over Australia are paying levies and, it, and it's our money. Growers from uh, every grower who sells wool in the auction system pays a levy and I think they're entitled to fair representation. At the moment, there is still a, and again, I'm not trying to be too controversial, but there's a pretty heavy mix of people from New South Wales on the board. There are more people from New South Wales trying to run and I just worry that the whole thing will become New South Wales centric and people from basically the West, from Victoria and New South Wales West, right through represented. Yeah, and it, it, it's just really important. You've got a, a background in business before coming into into Collinsville. What do you think that'll bring to, to the role if, if you do get, get on? Well, again, it's the opportunity to try and be objective. I've been, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with Collinsville and the wool industry in the mid-north of South Australia for the last 13 years. But as you said, I have also had a modicum of experience in both the logistics industry and the coffee industry and the finance industry. And I just think 
the many the, the challenges of running businesses in different industries enables probably gives me a little bit of an outside point of view to look at how to spend the best marketing dollar, how we ensure um, that we spend growers' levies in the best possible way to achieve maximum bang for buck so we can deliver the best possible outcomes for growers and their levies. You touched on this a bit, George, but what role do you think AWI plays for wool producers? Well, it's got, it's got two roles. Its statutory obligation is to be a research and development body and a marketing body. Now, research and development is really important. What we're seeing with the possibility of them releasing a fly strike vaccine, uh, that could be a real game changer. And then obviously the biological harvesting thing, uh, which I actually went to the field day in Canago about two months ago. They actually seem to think that's going to provide a viable alternative. Not that the shearing industry is very important. We want to continue to work with the shearing industry. Uh, the, the sort of growers and shearers have to continue to work hand in hand. And I think there's probably room to have more cooperation and to have a better dialogue between the Contractors Association and AWI. But the other thing that AWI does is marketing. Now, whilst research development's really good, we have been growing merinos in, in South Australia and Australia for a long time. We've developed a pretty good process about doing it in what's regarded as probably world's best practice. In fact, where they grow merinos throughout the world, uh, they come to Australia and South Australia to look at what we do and how we process sheep and all the methods around and what we do for animal welfare and husbandry. I don't think you need to invest a lot of money in research and development that's going to move the needle up. At the end of the day, we need to get more money in wool growers' pockets. We're losing land use to what's going on at the minute, to, to cropping and everything else, because quite simply, wool's not worth enough. I want to try and make sure it's viable for future generations. And quite frankly, at the moment, wool growers aren't getting enough uh, for their products. Wool's this fantastic fibre. It's renewable, organic biodegradable, it competes with nylon, uh, basically out there in the market, which is a byproduct of the crude oil industry. We need to go to our export markets and actually start promoting this, I think, a lot harder. We need to try and lift the demand for the product. Supply is pretty fixed. As much as I'd like to see it, I can't see, like this year's been a, a reason, it's dry in some parts of South Australia, but the last couple of years have been reasonably good seasons across Australia. It's hard to see Australia producing a lot more wool than what we currently are. If we can lift demand by promoting the wonderful attributes of it to our export markets and overseas and also in Australia, well, then the price has to go up. And I believe the price has to go up if the industry is going to remain sustainable. South Australia is very well known for its merino industry and, and its genetics. And it's, it's known worldwide. There's people looking for it uh, across the world. Do you think by having yourself on the board will help with that, that marketing of, of the wool around the world? Well, again, whilst it's... it's and, I, as I said before, I am running because I, I think it's really important that South Australians have a seat at the table. I'm not doing it to solely promote South Australia. I'm doing it to represent South Australian interests to make sure it doesn't become New South Wales-centric. But again, I think there's been a lot of politics that's happened in the wool industry about trying to represent interest groups and all the rest of it. I believe we need to come together in the industry and try and get past that and try and spend this levy-payer money in the most cost-effective way to promote the whole industry because we all need to come together to try and push the story of what it is and try and drive up the demand. There's been an independent board nomination committee process uh, that's taken place. Um, that was a very rigorous process. It was conducted completely independent of what's going on. And so they tried to pick the best skills-based people they thought would provide the best benefit to the board. So there's five candidates. They've picked three people. One of them is myself. One of them is Neil Jackson from Western Australia. 
and the other one is Emma Weston from New South Wales. She's basically the skills-based candidate. Uh, she's involved with grade marketing uh, and the internet and agri-marketing and agri-digital, um, I think would bring some excellent skills about the way that we actually need to market uh, to market this thing going forward. And it's also really important, there's still three days for people to be able to vote. There's a lot of people that don't vote in the AWI election, and it's really important that people have their say, particularly South Australians. I think if you haven't voted, a lot of people think, oh, it'll be right, I don't have to vote. There's always a very low voter turnout in these elections. It is really important that you have your say. You're, it's too late to mail them, but you should have your election papers at home and there are instructions on there on how to vote electronically and log in and do it, and you can do it until Thursday night. So I, I just stress that if you want to have a say, you've, you've got to participate in the electoral process. Otherwise, things can happen. We can end up with the wrong representatives, and then a lot of people won't be very happy. George Millington from Collinsville Stud Marino at Hallett, and he was speaking there to Brooke Nindorf. It's 13 minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour, and you're with Selena Green today. Well, a Western Australian farmer says Pacific Seeds Garrison canola variety has underperformed this season. In fact, he's recorded a 21% mortality rate, and he wants compensation. John Snook farms just southwest of Kundurn in the WA Wheat Belt. He says Pacific Seeds, via its entity Advanta, did offer did offer a refund for the cost of the seed around twenty one thousand dollars. John says that's not good enough. He wants the company to recognise and compensate for the loss of potential canola production, which in his case adds up to around seventy three thousand dollars. John told Belinda Varashetti the performance of this canola variety is unacceptable. Uh, the performance of the Garrison XC canola seed has been poor, Belinda. We applied the first Roundup spray and had a 21% mortality. So that, that wasn't a good start for the variety. But thereafter, the ones that survived displayed very poor vigour and the end yield result has been very disappointing. Just to be clear, what is the exact name of the seed we're talking about? Uh, it's Garrison XC. It is a dual tolerance herbicide tolerant canola I suppose it's roundup ready tolerant but also tolerant to clear field or imi sprays. And what is the seed meant to deliver? What does it promise? Uh, it's a high yielding package and it also offers the ability to tolerate the imi herbicide residue which is the reason we grew it. So it was the first time we'd ever chosen a dual tolerant canola. Uh, it has been promoted by the company as a canola to fit this purpose. So we jumped on board with our agronomist's advice, but we've been completely let down, Belinda, because it, the seed just wasn't fit for purpose. And you said earlier that you've suffered losses of 21%. I mean, you've been in this business a while now. How does that compare? Because, I mean, you, you know, from season to season, you might expect to see some sort of yield losses. That's correct. Different varieties perform differently in different seasons. As farmers, we're always weighing up that and we recognise that. But this is such poor performing canola. So we are really disappointed and we're disappointed in the company. It just doesn't seem to want to deal with the issue. And what did the company say? What was the response from the company when it was raised with them that, that looks like that you know they're seeing these sort of losses in the field? I had no response from the company, disappointingly. Before harvest, I wanted the issue cleared up as best we could. I reached out to them and they were actually honest. They said, John, we've got nothing to offer you. I'm sorry. 
uh, you're going to have to go down your pathway you need to for your business, which I have done since, and I've lodged a complaint from with the Department of Consumer Protection, and they've been fantastic. And interestingly, once that complaint was lodged, I received a call from the company. But that was sort of more a smooth over sort of tactics, just a, a communication strategy they have employed. And they said, John, whenever you're ready to talk further about the issue, give us a buzz. So I considered our position and called them back. And I did an economic analysis on our production loss, but they're not interested, Blender, in production loss. They're only interested in refunding the cost of the seed and forcing growers to sign a non-disclosure agreement. So that was the offer. What did you take? I haven't taken anything, Belinda. I'm not comfortable with a refund of the seed because the issue is about production and the loss of production. We buy canola seed with an expectation that it will meet the national variety trial data. And this variety is so far below that. What did you see? What were your observations in the field? with this canola seed? Well, it was mortality of the young canola. That was very, very evident. But also the lack of response to crop husbandry around fertilisers, it just didn't respond like the other varieties. Plus, we witnessed in the the hot spells that we've had during the spring that the, the flowers just fell off the garrison. It sort of threw in the towel, Belinda, relative to other varieties alongside, which did a remarkable job in difficult conditions to get a a good yield. This variety is just poor. So they must have known that. I I just can't see how a, a big corporate canola breeding company would not know. If they didn't know, how do we trust them going forward? So you're at 21% mortality rate. What have you heard from other growers? Is it a similar story in terms of that mortality rate? Uh, very much so. The ones that have been affected and have sent their seed off for independent testing have even incurred a higher rate of mortality. I'm possibly at the lower end. I think you said earlier, John, that you are going to get back the the cost of your seed. Is that is that the deal that's been done with the company? Oh, I haven't done a deal and I'm not really intending on doing the deal because on their terms, they want to refund the cost of the seed. But to me, it's not about a refund for the seed. They've got to recognise the production loss, which is more a compensation issue than a refund of the seed. I I don't want my seed refunded. I want the company to recognise that they've caused intentionally by their poor due diligence a massive production loss for this variety on my farm. So I don't intend on accepting a refund or signing an NDA that, that rats me up into silence over the scraps of a refund. And if, if it was a, a more accurate compensation package that was on the table, what would, that, what would that look like? My economic analysis, and I've only got a small amount of garrison canola in this year, but it was a 70, around about a $73,000 economic loss. What would you like to see happen from this point? I would actually like to see the company put out some communication calling for every grower that has experienced poor yields from their garrison variety to come forward and we discuss compensation. And Belinda, most farmers, if they did that, would see the integrity and the genuine nature of the company to solve the problem. But if they're just going to keep picking growers off, forcing them into an NDA and offering a refund on the seed as it, then I think this issue is going to go down another pathway. 
That's Western Australian farmer John Snook, and he was speaking there to Belinda Varachetti. Now, Advanta Seeds was unavailable for an interview. However, Advanta Seeds Managing Director Andrew Short did say, and I'll quote, Pacific Seeds has a well-defined process for addressing product complaints. We value our customers and take all complaints seriously. We are committed to working with individual growers to resolve any complaints and to ensure our relationships with them remain strong. It's 21 minutes past 12. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, time to head to the markets now. John Traeger has the Dublin sheep and cattle sale results. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Numbers and quality lifted this week as agents offered 4,200 lambs and 1,200 sheep. The usual trade and process of buyers, less one Victorian buyer were present and most were active along with limited restocker activity. Some larger lines of fresh new season's lamb came forward and these sold 5 to $8 dearer with Sean new season's lambs offered in larger numbers. Sheep quality was again good and most classes sold marginally dearer. Extremely light young lambs sold from $12 to $49, as lightweights ranged from $45 to $96. Medium weights sold from $70 to $85, with heavy lambs selling from $100 to $128, and extreme heavyweights to $135 per head. Light older lambs sold from $26 to $55, as medium weights ranged from $80 to $102. Heavyweights sold from 112 to 118, with extreme heavyweights selling from 141 to the sale top of $150 per head. Hoggets sold from 22 to $26, as medium ewe mutton sold from 5 to 25. Heavyweights ranged from 23 to $40, and ram lambs sold from 14 to $36 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers increased this week as agents offered 200 live weight and open auction cattle and 50 open auction calves. The usual buyers were in attendance and operating, along with restockers in a market that remained generally firm for type and condition. Specialty butchers were also active on lighter and better conditioned young cattle. Vila steers sold from 192 to 214 cents, with Vila heifers selling from 155 to 182 cents. Yearling steers sold from 146 to 202 cents, as yearling heifers ranged from 122 to 190 cents. Grown steers sold from 160 to 164 cents, with grown heifers selling from 138 to 160 cents. Light cows ranged from 62 at 130 cents. Medium cows sold from 140 to 160, with heavy cows selling from 130 to 170 cents. Bulls sold from 60 to 168 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. And now to Peter Kerr. He's got the latest from the Mount Gambier sale. Good afternoon, Peter. And we're off. We seem to have a bit of an issue there reaching Peter. We'll see if we can uh, get him back up on the line in a moment. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. On the way to the drop zone, you think of everything that can go wrong. What if the parachute doesn't work? Someone who has seen and done remarkable things. I remember jumping and freefall. There's so much information going into your mind. I remember landing going, what just happened? That was just insane. I never thought I could do that. Hear the latest conversations weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. This summer, have a safe one by learning your ABCs. 
A is for action plan. Having an action plan means you know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. B is for be safe. Be aware of the hazards you may face in the local area. C is for connect. Connect to abc.net.au slash emergency for the latest emergency information. During an emergency, listen to your local ABC radio station. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash gives to donate today. Tune your mood with the ABC Listen app. Get swept away in a podcast. Some people come to remembering very funny things from surgery. Really? Choose the news that suits you. Call live radio shows. Carl is calling from the ABC Listen app. Hello, can we make a science week again? And find a playlist that moves you. Anytime, anywhere, every day. Life sounds better with the ABC Listen app. You're with Selena Green on the country this afternoon. It's 26 minutes past 12. Apologies, I can't bring you that uh, report from the Mount Gambier cell, but I can bring you the Weather Bureau, hopefully, and Jenny Horvat. Hello. Good afternoon, Selena. <laughs> right, so we've eaten into a bit of your time today. Sorry about that. What can you tell us that we need to know about the weather? Yeah, look, it's a bit of a split the state in half there, Selena. So we've got a bit of a ridge to the south and that's keeping everything pretty much cool and mild and relatively stable. And that's going to see us through, um, through the, through the week and into the, into the weekend. But it's, um, it's a little bit interesting as we look further to the north of the state. We've got a very unstable air mass and that's ahead of an upper trough that's going to continue to trigger some showers and thunderstorms across the north and west. So we've already seen Quite a bit of thunderstorm activity across the the north of the state, so pretty much north of um Cooperpedi at the at the moment, and we've got some storms approaching along our um into from WA that'll come across the the far western coasts as well um, later today. So broadly looking at those storms, pretty much across the northwest pastoral district, pushing into the northeast pastoral um, district as well, and through the west coast district. There's a little bit of a question mark whether we'll see them pushing into the into the more into the Flinders and Eyre Peninsula as well today. Um, but yeah, it's very active out there, and we are monitoring those storms, um, especially in the far northwest and those ones coming across um, the west coast near WA for whether they'll see some severe storms in them later today. So we could see some locally heavy rainfall that could lead to some flash flooding out there and maybe some damaging wind gusts as well. So this trough is going to linger across the north of the state as we head into the into the weekend. So again, maybe more broadly, those storms moving across the the north of the state on Thursday, but maybe coming a little bit further south. So more likely to see them um, again coming across into the Flinders and parts of the Air Peninsula and right across to the border tomorrow and on Friday maybe starting to clip back from that eastern border but still maintained around the northwest of the state there. And again, we will be monitoring for severe storms on Thursday and Friday, especially in the um, the northern parts of the state. So maybe tomorrow around the sort of Unidata and Marla areas. We are kind of looking at, at that sort of um, area for those storms. Again, looking at maybe some um, 
locally heavy falls and some flash flooding, so possible impacts to outback roads, some damaging wind gusts again, and maybe Thursday and Friday we'll be keeping an eye out for some um, large hail with those stronger storms up in the north through there. So generally having a look at the rainfall that we can expect up until midnight Sunday, generally looking at around 5 millimetres for central and eastern parts, but increasing to 5 to 15 about our western parts and 15 to 30 in the far west and far north west. Um, but we could see those thunderstorms in the north and west producing some locally heavy falls of in excess of 50 millimetres. So it could be a little bit wet out there, Selena. All right. Thanks for that. Jenny, Jenny Horvat, our forecaster today. A quick look at the western inland of New South Wales. The forecast for both the upper and western districts for tomorrow, partly cloudy with a slight chance of a shower. Uh, that's in the far east in the afternoon. For the lower western district, near zero chance of rain elsewhere. For the upper western district, there is a chance of a thunderstorm in the north in the morning and afternoon. Daytime temperatures will get to somewhere around th- between 31 and 38 degrees. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hi there. There are thousands upon thousands of kilometres of roads crisscrossing South Australia. So how can you determine which ones are in the worst state of repair without eyeballing every single inch of it in person? Some world-first technology called the iPave is out surveying the conditions of our roads as we speak, and you'll hear more on that in just a moment. And when was the last time you bought fruit and veggies in those, those little net bags? A lot of larger companies have gone away from the manual bagging. We had one main company that we were sewing bags for that they have pulled the pin on that. So that's been a huge, I guess, impact on us. That was eighty to 100,000 bags per year. Demand has dropped significantly for these bags. You're going to meet some of the South Australians who make them and what this all means for their future. But first, Matt Coleman has your news. Hi, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the police commissioner says he's been told five people released from immigration detention after a high court ruling are living in South Australia. They're among dozens of asylum seekers released after the court ruled last week they were being held unlawfully. The federal government has revealed that three murderers and several sex offenders were among those released. The Arts Minister Andrea Michaels says she hopes to receive the findings of an investigation into the APY Arts Centre Collective by Christmas. The state and federal funded investigation was ordered in May from allegations that non-Indigenous workers had interfered in works by Aboriginal artists. Ms Michaels says the panel appointed to conduct the investigation is still gathering evidence. And the former coach of Adelaide teen prodigy Nestori Irankunda says he was amazed by the player's talent at just nine years old. The 17-year-old Adelaide United star has just been sold to German giants Bayern Munich for an A-League record transfer fee. It's a contract reportedly worth more than $5.8 million. More news at 1 o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, the country has a lot of roads, a lot of roads that need repair and only so many dollars to spend on it. 
There's some world-first technology is being deployed on South Australian roads right now to give the clearest picture yet on the state of them and how repairs should be prioritised. It's a Danish-developed technology called iPave. You may have even seen it out on the highway. Jeff Brock is the Minister for Regional Roads. Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, and it's great to be on your radio station and talking to people out in the regions. What is iPave and what does it do? iPave is a, a, a new technology of big vehicle, and what it does is it's able to travel across the roads, uh, all roads across in South Australia, and state roads, we're doing state roads first, to actually have a look at and be able to identify deep down uh, the opportunity to um, see what the base of the material are and the roads across all of our state across there. Now, this is a vehicle that's got all the equipment in it. It's got the lasers in it, and it's, it's an intelligent pavement assessment vehicle. That's why it's called iPave. It's a prime mover and trailer equipped with a heavy weight over the single rear axle. It's got a series of lasers mounted in the trailer, which measures the deflection, the velocity of the pavement on the left-hand wheel pave as the truck travels down the road at highway speeds. But this is the first time that we have one of these trucks and one of these uh, opportunities in, uh, in South Australia to actually measure the pavement, that, which is right down to, uh, down to one metre of all of our roads across all of South Australia, including regional areas and also metropolitan areas over the, the next uh, 12 months. So it has been out there, what, I think for about a month. Um, so yes. what, what areas has it done already? Uh, they've done about 2,500 kilometres at the moment. Uh, it's, we've got a road uh, network out there of 18,000 kilometres, which they want to be able to do. But it's already surveyed the Glen Osmond Road, the South East Eastern Freeway and parts of the Stott Highway and the Karunda Highway. So we've started doing that out there. But oh, look, I had the opportunity just recently to actually see this vehicle firsthand at the depot. Uh, it is magnificent. It's uh, state-of-the-art. And what it's got is that in the, at the back, it's got all of these lasers and computers and things like that so they can get this. Once they uh, download it, uh, they can get a true indication of the condition of those roads. This is going to be able to give us a, a true indication of right down to the bottom of the base. And so I think it's a great idea about looking at the, the true condition of uh, all the roads instead of just the visual. Because once you have all this data back, then where does it go and what do you plan to do with it? Well, what we want to do is that it's going to be a big job. Uh, look, it's not it's not going to be done overnight, but certainly one of the things that we want to be able to do is uh, collate all that there so then we, we've got a true indication of our, our road network and the condition and uh, be able to look at the whole strategic direction, how we uh, do roads, where we do roads and things like that. So it is, it'll improve, uh, hopefully, uh, the condition of the roads once we start to do it, uh, the roads out there, but also the fact is it'll be a lot safer for people and, and travelling across all of South Australian roads. As you say, once you get this sort of detailed map and, and all of this data about the condition of the roads and where sort of the, the priorities and, and repair works do need to be done, uh, we know that there is already a lot of that work out there that needs to be done and a, a bit of a backlog of it. What about funding and resources to, to fix all of this up? Because I think not a day goes past where we don't hear about the condition of some dodgy country roads and the time it's oh. taking for repairs to be done. Look, uh, there's been roads out there. We've got a lot of backlog of roads and, uh, and I know this government inherited, uh, sorry, the previous government inherited $750 million worth of backlog and uh, I know when this government came in, it's over $1.5, $1.3 billion worth of backlog. So it's ever increasing out there and what we have to do is if we're going to spend the money out there, we've got to get it from the Fed, mostly in the federal government. Of course, it's a partnership between the state and the federal but certainly this will give us a true indication when, for our, our arguments, specifically for myself, there's the working with uh, Minister Kutsantonis as the Infrastructure Minister to be able to make certain that we've got all the information for a true argument 
and then that gives us better, um, in my view, uh, better um, information when we go to the federal government to, to actually get funds to match ours. Well, speaking of that, that federal state share of projects and upgrades, uh, we only had the federal minister for uh, infrastructure and transport, Catherine King, announcing a, a 50-50 split between the federal and state governments on future uh, projects uh, for regional projects, what previously was 80% for the Fed. So what would that mean for South Australia and the ability well, to, to fund major upgrades on, on regional roads and, and freight roads, routes going well, forward? Well, what, what we're doing is that we make certain that they look at that there uh, in a total in 2023-24, uh, we had a, the budget provided $56 million in new upgrades to regional roads. Uh, that was in addition to the over $350 million of regional road maintenance expected to occur over the next four years. Plus, at the end of the day, is that I know that the Minister Kutsantonis is um, going to be talking to... He's the infrastructure minister. He'll be talking to the federal government about that matching thing. It's certain, but certainly that's something we'll have to take on board with the uh, federal uh, minister. Being that there is already a significant backlog, will regional road projects suffer with more funding required from the state? I hope not. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, this is this iPave uh, vehicle is going to give me uh, and, the, and the department a true indication of the condition of the roads out there. And once it's not going to be ad hoc, we're going to be, have true indication of it. And then if that gives us better arguing point to, for not only our treasurer, but also um, when we go back to the federal government for infrastructure improvements, specifically for uh, corridors that... Uh, for efficiencies or transportation and uh, and things like that. So it gives us a true indication, not a, a surface uh, visualisation. Minister, thanks for joining us this afternoon. And uh, it's great. It's my pleasure. And I hope everybody has a great, really great day today. There's Jeff Brock there. He's the Minister for Regional Roads. Joining me now is Michael Caltabiano. He's the CEO of the National Transport Resource uh, Research Association, I should say. Uh, Michael, welcome to the Country Hour. It's lovely to be with you. Well, we've just heard about uh, what the IPAVE is out doing on South Australian roads. It sounds like a lot of data that's going to be coming back in about the condition of those roads. How valuable is that type of information? Uh, well, it's incredibly valuable, and um, the IPAVE is a world-leading piece of technology delivered by the National Transport Research Organisation for the South Australian government and, more importantly, for the South Australian community. Um, the data sets that delivered by the IPAVE are second to none anywhere in the world. So what the South Australian community will have as a consequence of using the IPAVE is knowing what condition the network is in so that the government can then plan for the community the right treatment at the right time in the right place. Because funding for roads, obviously a hot topic, uh, and I think everyone would agree that there needs to be more of it. Uh, Roads are expensive to fix, so this can help direct that, uh, that valuable funding where it needs to go. That's exactly right, and uh, we're entering a period nationally where we're you know, fiscally constrained, so every dollar matters, and defining where these treatments are and the right treatment, right time, right place is going to be the mantra of governments for the future. And what the IPAVE does is provides insight into the road condition below the surface, so it sees below the surface and what capability and what strength a road has to withstand the loads of the future. So it will identify where failures are going to happen before you see them on the surface so that the agency can get in and fix them before it becomes a problem for the network. Is this going to be helpful in perhaps um, you know areas of flooding? And we've seen quite a bit of that across the country in recent years where there has been uh, perhaps natural disasters or incidents that may have damaged the road surface to, to figure out exactly you know where the weaknesses are? 
Exactly right. And we've just completed an enormous survey for the Victorian government. So post the big flood in October 2022, we brought the IPAVE in, IPAVE 3, the same one that's in South Australia right now, to do the 8,400 kilometres of flood-affected roads in Victoria. And we were able to identify for the Victorian government and the community in the northwest part of Victoria which roads were going to fail in the very near future because they were completely waterlogged and flooded and undated. And we identified 707 kilometres that had to be ripped out and replaced. Without the IPAVE, the department would be ripping out and replacing many, many more hundreds of kilometres of road without understanding why. So it saved the Victorian community um, many hundreds of millions of dollars. Because how otherwise would you get this sort of information? I mean, we've got such a vast network of roads across the country. It would normally this sort of be done by eye? That's right. Normally it's just visual inspection. And visual inspection gives you about 60% of the answer. So to get 100% of the answer, you need to run the iPave truck. It runs at 80 kilometres an hour, so it's with traffic. So no traffic control required, no lane closures, just part of the normal traffic flow. It picks up this wonderfully rich data set to inform government where where the problems exist and where they can utilise their very, very scarce public funds. Michael, thanks for joining us on the Country Hour this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure. I look forward to speaking to you again. Michael Caltabiano there. He's the CEO of the National Transport Research Association. Steve Sinclair, he's hopped on the text line to say, how about assess the condition of our rural rail network? Asked Steve. And Peter's in Snowtown. He says, I can tell you now that most of the roads are stuffed. No need for an expensive machine. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. It's 18 minutes to one. The Armand Centre for Excellence is now officially open. A 60-hectare research facility in Loxton was commissioned in 2016 with funding from the federal and South Australian governments. But now the multi-million dollar facility has been sold to the Armand Board of Australia. Port Innovation has provided more than $6 million to secure the future of experimental trials at the site. Eliza Bellage took a walk with Armand Board of Australia's Chief Executive Tim Jackson at the centre's field day yesterday, where he told her that the orchard was now owned by growers. So the new funding model that's been outlined by Hort Innovation is the next phase of this orchard being self-funding. When it was started, there was a very strict hand down from the board to say that it couldn't cost growers money. It had to be self-funding. It had to be able to prop up itself and perpetuate its research without growers having to dip into their pockets. So the new operation, operational funding model allows us to do that when it's been backed by uh, co-funding through our R&D levy and the crop receipts. How much does it cost to buy something like this? Well, we bought it for, for the same price that uh, it was purchased from the neighbouring grower, but in that time it's developed into a valuable asset for the industry. What was here before? It was just a, a wheat field, yeah, so grain grown, dry land farming area. So it's a huge transformation from a, from a wheat crop to uh, 60 hectares of R&D. What sort of things are, are growers learning about today? What, what have people been excited to hear and to find out about? Well, growers are certainly uh, looking for the next innovation in tree structure, rootstocks, uh, tree architecture, uh, varieties. There's, there's a lot of people looking to you know, plant almonds or re-stock uh, almond blocks. So just coming here and having a look at the spacings between the trees, between the rows, what rootstocks work with what varieties. So there's a lot of things here that they can come and have a look at before they make some um, pretty big decisions around investment and redeveloping a block or starting from scratch. Tim, we're looking at 
one of the uh, more experimental, kooky, nutty things here in the orchard. Some really close plantings of almond trees. How close are these trees planted and how different does does this whole situation look compared to a normal orchard? Well, traditionally a row, the gap between one line of trees and another is seven and a half metres or thereabouts. Some of these rows are down as low as three metres and then the tree spacings uh, along the line are down one or two metres, which is way, way, way smaller. It looks like a hedge more than it does a, uh, an almond orchard. And that's all about pushing it to the limit, and that's what this R&D facility is all about, is pushing things to the limit and seeing what works and what falls over. Because we're looking at, yeah, a more, I guess, a more commercial example of a, an almond tree growth here with lots more inside on the inside branches, less nuts and more leaves and less sunlight but in here they're much much skinnier but you said the idea was you get more sunlight yeah absolutely so the plant food research has done a lot of work with apples cherries and a few other horticultural crops in New Zealand and have had a lot of success in increasing yields but without increasing the size of the tree it is all about in capturing light so by having a different structure a more vertical structure where the tree can capture light all the way through the tree has been really successful though so trying the same theory with almonds and see how we go before the poor old grower goes out and puts it in and then comes to us in five years and goes, that was, a, no, it was no good. So we're better off having it go here first and then proving it before we say, yep, go ahead and do it. Some of the trials don't work. Like last year we had a bird expert working on um, managing birds in, in our orchard and had a theory that if she, we planted sunflowers down, down one row of the orchard that that might distract the birds. Um, we were a little bit concerned that it was more like a sizzler all-you-can-eat type scenario, and that's exactly what happened, that the sunflower thing just gave them about more of a balanced diet. So, you know, But if you don't yep. try it, you don't know. So, okay. And that's what this, 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 what this orchard's all about, is giving crazy ideas or left-field ideas a chance to be, to be done without a commercial ramification. I know someone said uh, they'd love to see, apparently some, um, there was a, an orchard in the US where they had almost like a, a carnival train coming through where maybe the walk would be and people could sort of sit on and, and learn about that. Could you ever see anything like that at the orchards here, like some kind of agritourism tours? Oh, potentially. Uh, we've got biosecurity issues. That's why you all did the foot bars today because it is, we want to protect the integrity of the trials. But given those sort of parameters, I think there is a potential for this place to actually be a showcase for for more than just the, the almond growers themselves but you know at the moment we're just focusing on trying to keep the orchard going and, and ensure that we've got trials that are meaningful for growers. As the almond board of Australia's chief executive Tim Jackson and he's speaking there to Eliza Berlage. Quite a few texts messages coming through talking about the iPave today and uh, scouring searching for the condition of our roads here in South Australia. Uh, this text, uh, no name, but it says, I really hope the government has dumped their idea to do a major ro- major's road exit and entry to Southern Expressway. This text believes it's really not needed and says get on with South Road and repairs around the state. Another text, this one also no name, it says, extra road funding spent on iPave and not on roads. This text says, SA taxpayer screwed. Peter from Bullaroo says, sounds like a job for a road scholar to interpret the information gained from the modern technology testing the highways. And Phil called in, Phil's from One Tree Hill. He says the elephant in the room is the previous governments have mothballed rail networks. No one is brave enough to open them up again and you see every harvest the amount of damage that is done to our road network, says Phil. Uh, if you'd like to add your thoughts, that text line again is 0467 922 891. It's just going on 12 minutes to one and you're with Selena Green on The Country Hour today.
Now, do you ever buy your fresh fruit and veggies in those net bags? You know the ones I'm talking about. You might think of them as bright orange mesh bags, but the breathable packaging option comes in many other colours too. And disability employment provider Arana was sowing about 100,000 bags a year, but now demand has dropped by almost 80% amid cost cuts from a big citrus company. Eliza Berlage visited Arana Loxton to find out how this change is affecting the workload of industrial sowers. Hello, I'm Caitlin Hartshorn and out of Loxton Wana I do sawing with like citrus bags for like certain companies around the Riverland. How long have you been making sewing citrus bags for? Almost seven years now. It's pretty much how I've trained here as well because I once I started I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. So like it was very nice to learn some new skills and just help productivity overall in Wana and elsewhere in Overland. You must be quite patient to sew. Has it taken you a while to, to get into it? Um, yeah, like originally only do like maybe a few hundred in, in a few hours, but now I can easily do like 500 in, in about an hour. How do you get into that groove state to make 500 in an hour? There's a lot of muscle memory involved, like, and mostly just following the protocol that we you know, safety and whatnot, especially if that needle can easily prick you at any moment. So there's, like, just all that, and I was, like, have a concentration. Let's just have, like, a set pattern, and then that's how I get on in a, at a constant pace and get a lot done. I understand that there's been less demand for these bags uh, in recent times. Would you miss making them or seeing them around? Absolutely, but like it's definitely more important to like help with the environment and like pricing of nowadays. And it's just like more convenient shipping as well. Like it's understandable. Like I do definitely miss it if it does go away. It's just so one of my more like very relaxing ones, and it's which makes me enjoy it a lot. Especially like I can get anxiety sometimes. It's just a very good thing. While also just helping everybody, and then it's like a constant nice wave. Like while you're still in the zone, while also keeping like on peace of mind while I sew at the same time. Loxton Arana Industrial Sewer, Caitlin Hartshorn. Fiona Schutz is the Business Service Operations Manager at Loxton Arana. She says the drop in orders for net bags is due to larger citrus companies cutting costs. So we sew three kilo citrus bags. We sew a header onto them and the header is owned by the company or, or the individual packing sheds that we supply to. We will sew uh, those headers on on their requirements and basically they are used for manual bagging, which we don't do a lot of bags anymore due to the cost. Uh, manual bagging is just very costly. And so a lot of larger companies have gone away from the manual bagging. Has this been quite a sudden change uh, in companies moving away from manual bagging? Not really sudden, I guess. It's probably been more of a gradual process but we had one main company that we were sewing bags for that they had pulled the pin on that so that's been a huge I guess impact on us that was 80 to 100,000 bags per year a couple of years ago that happened so they have to do what suits their practices as well and manual bagging is not part of that anymore. So how many bags would you be making now a year? Oh, probably if 20,000. Yeah, that would be about it. And so what does this mean for your clients in terms of the work that you provide? So looking obviously at other avenues, we're always looking for other jobs to do. We have some steady work. We've gone into propagation. So that gives the clients here 
opportunity to do different jobs, also depending on their capabilities, but we can offer some different jobs within that, less able-bodied up to plant cuttings, planting, but we have external work crew, so we do a lot of gardening work as well, so we're always looking for more opportunities to extend our business as well. Loxton Arana Business Service Operations Manager Fiona Schutz. One of their remaining customers is a packing house and farm just down the road. Nelson Citrus owner Josh Nelson says his family has been manually packing fruit, like Valencia oranges, into net bags for two decades. Our agents like that net bag. It's hand-packed. It looks and presents quite well to the, I suppose, the agent's eye and the buyer's eye. And that's probably what we pride and present our fruit in, that you can see pretty much every piece of fruit. The net bag's open to the to the naked eye I suppose and there's no hiding away from what's in that bag whereas some bags are probably either loosely packed or rumble packed um, into a three kilo bag with labels on it so maybe you can hide some more blemishes in that area. The staff at Arana were telling me that they've really had a bit of a downturn in demand for the uh, sewn and manufactured bags. Why do you think people are turning away from those? I'm not really sure why they'd be turning away from a net bag. I suppose the labour aspect of it is very high. It's time-consuming to do a net bag by itself. And also, I suppose, all I can put down is probably the labour side of it, really. So what sort of labour and time is involved in packing a net citrus bag compared to, you know, what some of the other alternatives are on the market? So we grade our fruit into bays and then we do a... It's not quite a class one. It's probably in between a class one and a composite pack into a row pack box... And then our next grade of fruit is into a net bag, so we sort of it's a class two piece of fruit. So manually wise, it, it's sorting that out. We don't distinguish it, and by just splitting it off and having bins and bins of it, we sort of work it out, and then we pack away as a net bag we can. But for the bigger sheds, I suppose for the amount of fruit they, I suppose they produce, they can put it into plastic bins, run their fruit, grade it, and put it into plastic bins in big quantities, and then put it into their three kilo bags of what they use. And is that something you're thinking of moving towards? Possibly, yes, for sure. As mentioned before, the labour side of it is is time consuming and if, if an agent does want some produce that day or the following day, we physically can't pack our stacks of bins up just to meet the demands of them. So if we were to have a, a machine that was able to do that and, and row pack it straight away into it, it could be a net bag, it could be a loosely rumble fill bag into a three kilo side of it to get rid of our second class fruit, we'd definitely look at that for sure. We'd 100% love to put everything in a box because that's where you make your money. But you've got to get rid of your second grade fruit and it's, it's one of those things, it's perceiving thing from a, from a buyer. It's, if there's a slight mark on it or it's discoloured or it's disformed in shape in some way doesn't mean that it's it's not a nice piece of fruit it's a lot of the stuff is very much similar to what goes into a box into a bag inside taste wise but it's a perceivance of the buyer more than anything that's Nelson Citrus owner Josh Nelson, and he's ending that story from Eliza Berlage. Well, finally, let's meet the world's oldest cowboy who's been honoured in his hometown of Cootamundra with the rodeo arena named in his honour. 92-year-old Bob Holder took up the sport in the 40s. He's still in the saddle after beating a serious lung disease, and reporter Monty Jacker caught up with him. Cootamundra is a man by the name of Bob Holder. He's 92 years of age, and he's a rodeo cowboy through and through. First time I competed, I won the, the uh, Central Division Bronc Ride at Tumut. I was 14, and I thought, this is for me. 
and I loved the, the style of rodeo, I loved the rodeo people, so I took it on and I've never looked stopped. I've travelled the world rodeo, America, Canada, won, won prizes in every country. Oh, Madison Square Gardens, New York was a highlight. I drew a horse that hadn't been ridden for three years, a horse called Meat Hook. Belonged to Harry Knight from Fowler, Colorado. They all advised me not, not to get on him. I said, well, it was my last rodeo before I come back to Australia. I'm not turning the horse out. So I got on and rode him and, and made history that day. How about a big round of applause for our local man right there? Yes, yeah, so I used to run this year. I ran seven national finals here, could it? Then, then the committee dissolved and went for many years. No, no rodeo here at all. Now it's a good young committee got going here and they've done a very good job for, for on the rodeo ground, made a good ground out of it and, and, and really looked after and got good stock here to buck. So these people go a long way. Kudamundra Rodeo President Mick Axentiff says Bob's made an enormous contribution to the sport, fostering the interest of younger competitors. Everything encouraging um, from Bob. He just loves young kids coming up to him and he just tells them to dedicate, keep keep working on what you're doing, you'll get better. It's like every sport. And just a true gentleman, he, he's sick of, you know, never gets sick of people, helping people. There's not a cowboy or cowgirl goes past, doesn't know Bob Holt, Australia-wide, worldwide. It's it's amazing how many com- young competitors in the roping industry want to want to compete with Bob. They don't care if they don't if they only rope a calf or they miss their calf. It's the privilege of roping with Bob Holder. It's taken a long time without rodeo, so now at this time of his life, now I think it's time to recognise him um, in this community, which we are, like with street parades Thursday night. You know, Bob, Bob on the stagecoach, and the crowd just yelling out his name was phenomenal. And Bob has no intention of hanging up the saddle. No, no, it's been good. I've got a couple of new hips in. And my lungs played up for a day or two, but it's all right. No, I'm going good. But a lot of people are worse off than I am. I just want to be a cowboy and I'm going to stay a cowboy. I'm going to keep on going as long as I can because I like it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bobby Holder. 92-year-old Bob Holder there. And if you want to read more about Bob and actually see some footage of him in action, you can head to the abc.net.au forward slash rural website. There's a great story you can check out right now. Now, a couple of texts to get to quickly. This one's from Jack and Cal. He says, we don't need that thing to see all the stuffed roads in our district, just the federal government to spend a bit more on the fuel excise back on the roads, which is what it was first introduced for, not general revenue. And Kim says, we might not need the Majors Road entrance exit to the Southern Expressway right now, but when our tunnels are complete and people have a long way on it, come a long way on it, it will make a lot of sense to be able to exit there. It has to be done sometime before the tunnels, if not now, when? ask him. Thanks so much for all your texts and calls today. Uh, Stick around. Caroline Winter will be bringing you afternoons today and she's going to be doing some consumer talk pack with Dini Sulio, uh, bringing you the latest Ambo news from the Premier and talking movies with Deb Tribe as well. So that's with Caroline Winter this afternoon. Thanks so much for your company today. It's just going on to news time and one o'clock. Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news and weather. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.